I've had my own health challenges and I have seen, I have heard the stories. Well, it's in your head when the doctors don't have the answers. It's in your head. Um, and physical and mental health do pair together. Right. And that is, you know, there is validity to that, but it's the way that it's treated that isn't necessarily, it doesn't make it meaningful and it feels very dismissive. You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz and his guests for conversations about all things ORAU. They'll talk about ORAU storied history, our impact on an ever-changing world, our innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers, and our commitment to the communities where we do business. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Welcome to a special episode of Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Earlier this year, Brenda Blunt, ORAU Senior Director of Health Policy, and I got the chance to interview each other as part of StoryCorps. You may be familiar with StoryCorps from the interviews that air on National Public Radio. The idea behind StoryCorps is that everyone has a story to tell and that every story matters. In telling those stories, StoryCorps invites two people, like family members, friends, spouses, colleagues, etc., to interview each other, sometimes around a particular topic. All StoryCorps interviews are collected by the Library of Congress as part of an online archive that is now the largest single collection of human voices ever gathered. We got to be part of StoryCorps when Brenda and I were among a team of ORAU employees attending the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Health Equity Conference in Washington, D.C. earlier this year. We sat across the table from each other and discussed several aspects of health equity, from our own experiences working in and being patients of the healthcare system. What follows is our interview in its entirety. We have permission from StoryCorps to broadcast this interview. To learn more about the StoryCorps project, visit StoryCorps.org. Hi, my name is Michael Holtz. I am 54 years old. Today is June 8th, 2023. I'm in Washington, D.C., speaking with my interview partner, Brenda Blunt, and we are work colleagues. Thank you, Michael. It is a great pleasure to be here. As Michael said, I am Brenda Blunt. We are in Washington, D.C. on June 8th, 2023. So, Michael, Tell me about the first time we met and your impression of me. So we first met on a conference call, actually, on a project we were working on together when we were working for two different companies. You were, you were working for um, a different organization before you came to work at ORU. And um, I have to tell you, I was impressed. I, I loved the energy that you brought to the project that we were working on. I believe we were working on a project for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, trying to do some work together. And um, I was thrilled when I heard that you were coming to work at ORU. So um, it was a great first impression. So <laughs> what, was your, what was your impression of me? <laughs> you are very kind. So I was really excited by the creativity and the drive that you have around journalism and marketing and really getting information out in whatever means would be meaningful for the intended audience. So talking about podcasts and just different social media campaigns and the different capabilities and modalities to reach 
people where they are and what's meaningful for them. So I was excited by that in all because it's not my forte. <laughs> it is not my area. Um, you know, I, I focus on the health, but I think bringing together our disciplines has such a great impact in trying to alleviate health equities and reaching people. And I think what what excites me about working with you and, and that we are now colleagues working for the same company is – we both have a vested interest in health equity. It's a passion for both of us um, and our organization as well. But um, getting the word out and how do we how do we change the world so that we're living in a more equitable, um, really living in a more equitable country when it comes to health. Um, as you know, I'm a cancer survivor, um, and um, really solving the health equity riddle for colorectal cancer, which is what I was diagnosed with in um, 2012, really has become a huge passion for me. Um, how do we figure out how to keep black men in particular and LGBTQ men and women from dying of colon cancer and stopping this disease and making sure everyone understands the importance of screening and um, early detection and prevention. Um, and I know that's just one piece of it, but that's a huge part of my driver when it, when talking about health equity. Um, what was it? What is it for you? Where, where does that come from um, in your life in terms of focusing on health equity? So my comes from a couple of different areas, right? So I am a nurse by background. I was also a public health lab scientist before I was a nurse. Um, we have five children. I've got six grandchildren. And while I have been privileged to the majority of my life, I've lived in suburban areas with major medical centers and academia medical centers and that, that's not always. I've also lived in rural areas and currently live in a rural area that has limited medical care. So part of it is how do we bridge those differences? Mm -hmm. And everybody's quick to say technology, but the rural areas also don't have broadband. So when right. you're talking about telehealth and televisits, that's not as easy as it is when you live in a city and you have broadband internet connections and you have uh, technology literacy right? So if you're in a rural community and you've never had broadband and you might not have that much computer literacy, it's harder to just Absolutely. say, oh, telemedicine bridges that. Um, but there's also different cultural aspects to that, that we need to take into consideration and not just forcing our kind of conventional medical wisdom on people that's not meeting them where they are. So we need to have individualized medicine. I've seen it a lot in my practice, of the differences when you can actually meet people in their homes mm. and talk to them in their life, you get so much more information and have that time to identify a way to help coach them in ways that are meaningful to them and are addressing the problems that they see and the things that they want to address versus you go into a doctor's office, they look at your lab test and they say, oh, this lab test is off. You need to go home and do this. And that's the end of the conversation. Right. So there's to really get to equity, we need to be more personable 
We need to really understand people and be able to meet them and coach them where they are. You don't take sports figures and throw them in and coach them the same way and expect the same outcomes from each of them. You have to understand what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, what is their form, and work with that mm-hmm. when you're coaching them. And healthcare, to me, is much we need to approach it much the same way. Um, you know, and, and I've had my own health challenges, and I have seen, I have heard the stories. Well, it's in your head when the doctors don't have the answers. It's in your head. Um, and physical and mental health do pair together. Right. And that is, you know, there is validity to that, but it's the way that it's treated that isn't necessarily, it doesn't make it meaningful and it feels very dismissive. So really helping people to understand how those interplay, but also why is it that way? And what can they do? What can empower them to take ownership of those things for themselves? And that's different in each community. It's different for each person, even within the same communities and the same, we group people by population types, but there's still differences. We're all human. So that health equity is really important to get to individual people and recognize their experiences, recognize what do they understand, what is important to them, and work within those things. So for you as a cancer survivor, you know, I'd love to hear about your kind of journey and experience and were there particular areas of that journey or experience that you either witnessed where disparities occur or you could just visualize and tell, you know, if I wasn't a white male with good resources, I know that at this point there would have been a difference in my care. I think, to be honest, my entire cancer journey was um, one of privilege of having, I had great access. I'm a middle-aged white guy. I mean, I was 43 at the time I was diagnosed, but, um, you know, I had great health insurance. My largest out-of-pocket bill was $250 for my surgery, right? And five days in the hospital. Most people don't have that. (laughs) Um, and then, you know, now I have a permanent colostomy because of my rectal cancer. And one of the things that truly keeps me up at night is what about people who don't have insurance? I mean, I've paid out of pocket for parts of the medical supplies that I need just because I use them faster than insurance covers. For people who have to pay out of pocket for everything that gets them through a 30-day supply would cost hundreds of dollars. If you don't have health insurance, how do they do that? You know, what does life look like for someone with an ostomy who doesn't have insurance and can't get the supplies that they need or has to wear them perhaps longer than prescribed, that sort of thing? Um, and really just treatment. You know, I had 28 rounds of radiation um, as part of my treatment protocol combined with oral chemotherapy. And... I think about the people, I mean, I, I worked for a cancer nonprofit at the time. So working in a cancer nonprofit and having cancer, like <laughs> it's the best place, you know, if you're going to hear those words, working for a non, non, a cancer nonprofit is kind of the place to do that. But I think about people who have jobs that they don't have 
medical leave. They can't leave to, even though a radiation treatment session is 15 minutes or less, 28 times, you know, who has, who has a job that can let them do that? Um, if you're working in the service industry, if you're on the front lines, as we've all learned through the pandemic, you know, we have a, a lot of frontline workers in our economy. What if you can't get away from work 28 times, um, even for a little while, or you put off surgery, you know, something is wrong, but I'm going to go to the doctor and he's going to tell me there's a problem. And then I have to do treatment, which means I have to figure out how to take time off or have surgery. That means I'm going to need weeks off at a time. Putting all of that in balance, um, I can see really through my entire cancer journey. I mean, I could pay my copays. There are people I know who I have talked to who, you know, have to make the decision. Copay or food on the table. Copay or gasoline in the tank. Those are not fair choices. Nobody should have to make those choices um, when it comes to their health, when it comes to keeping themselves alive. So, so yeah, I think there were a number of points through my own experience that um, drive my passion to be an advocate today because, you know, I am a middle-aged white guy. People will listen to me. Um, and I can use my voice to talk about the fact that there are people who are not like me, who are, who have challenges that I didn't experience. And did you have, so you worked for a cancer nonprofit, so you obviously had familiarity with cancer, you had familiarity with treatment types. Absolutely. How did you feel that the education was that you received about kind of what is the cancer? What are the treatments? What to expect from the treatments? What to expect to, for life afterwards? I will say that f- from the outset, I had great doctors. I had great education. My surgeon, um, Dr. Greg Midas in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, was amazing because he really sat down with my wife and, and me and walked through this is this is what your treatment plan is going to look like. This is how long it's going to take. Um, we knew it was 11 months from kind of start to finish, you know, in terms of the combined chemo, oral chemo with radiation. And then when the surgery was going to happen and then six months of adjuvant chemo afterwards. Um, so we were, we were pretty well versed in what the overall plan looked like. And we understood what that looked like. We were comfortable. I loved my surgeon, I love the medical team that he put together. Um, what didn't happen and that I wish had happened was a more palliative care approach to my treatment. I mean, I had a nutritionist who basically said, eat whatever you can tolerate. Um, as a guy who has struggled with his weight his entire life and I didn't have the symptoms you know, I didn't have nausea and vomiting as part of chemo. Um, but you know, when you feel like crap, you eat crap. And so I, I have worked diligently to lose a hundred pounds in the two years before my diagnosis. And I put every one of them plus some friends on during treatment because I've, didn't feel good. I couldn't 
move because fatigue was just unbelievable. And I ate poorly. And while that was, I recognized my choice. You know, if I had somebody who was asking questions about, you know, hey, your weight's going up a little quickly. You know, what's the deal? But I wasn't losing weight. So nobody was really concerned. Um, and now in the in the life after, I I wish there had been more of a systematic approach to like cancer survivor planning. You know, um, my doctors have all set me free from their care. I did five years of surveillance with my surgeon and then ten years with my oncologist, and it's great to be free, but little things have come up ever since that are treatment related. Um, I just recently was diagnosed with hearing loss because of nerve damage from the platinum based drug that was part of my chemo cocktail. I'm being monitored regularly for glaucoma because of nerve damage from, you know, chemo and on and on. Like I came out of chemo with seven cavities and, high blood pressure and left ventricular hypertrophy. I mean, just all of these little things that are related. And so, you know, now I'm on these long-term meds that, you know, I'll be taking for the rest of my life to deal with, you know, issues related to cancer treatment. And again, I think, what about people who struggle to pay their bills or don't have insurance or, you know, and, these little health problems keep popping up and they probably will for the rest of my life. Um, so, you know, from the beginning to answer your question from the beginning, information and care was great. There are places where it could have been better. And that's again, where, um, I've been speaking out about, you know, specific pieces of legislation that can help other people, um, who are in the same boat that I was. And that's fascinating. So you touched, so there's a couple of things that I'd like to pull on there. So you touched on, you had a nutritionist. Right. And yet you still found that you didn't eat well, which we know nutrition is a foundational part of healing and just your body overall being able to function. So when you're already under a physical stressor like chemotherapy and radiation and trying to fight cancer and now the fuel that you're putting into it is not good. Right. Right. So, but you didn't find much help from the nutritionist in that. And you put, you gained weight, which, you know, is not, you don't know how abnormal it is, but I think the normal occurrence people have in their mind is people lose weight. Absolutely. Right. Cancer is a wasting disease. Right. So did you have any support or help then when you got through that in, okay, I've put all this weight on, I don't feel well, how do I get this weight back off? Because to be in your best possible health, it needed to come off. Uh, resources that I found by myself because okay. I, I reached, you know, a point where it's, I have to do something again, you know, which I did to lose weight the first time was, you know, um, put my own plan together. I mean, I'm a, personally, I'm a big believer in Weight Watchers. Um, and so, you know, getting back on, track and eating, making conscious decisions to eat better, exercise more. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it, 
wasn't a plan through my medical provider. It was something that I reached a point where I was like, I have to do something. And you kind of had foundational knowledge because you had lost weight before. So you were already familiar with things like Weight Watchers and – and I have access to, you know, grocery stores and, um, you know, I don't have to shop at a convenience store um, to get my groceries because, you know, I have transportation. The grocery store is three blocks from my house. You know, again, there are there are a lot of people even in the rural communities in Tennessee where we both live that, you know, the grocery store is dozens of miles away sometimes. Right. Um and the gas station is quicker. Right. And you buy what you can get at the convenience store. Or in there are neighborhoods. There's, you know, in Knoxville where I live, there are lines where you sort of know, like, if I go east of here, I'm not going to find a grocery store for miles, you know. Um, there's also not a hospital, right? right? I have to drive across town to get to the hospital. There's also not bus service you know, that is adequate for the population and the community. So lots of those social determinants of health factors that we talk about all the time come into play um, really at a very base level. And do you, so now, and you also mentioned that you have these little things that pop up that are a result of having gone through chemotherapy some of them, like high blood pressure, we also say you're middle-aged and you're male and right. the standard American diet leads to high blood pressure. So do you have any nutritional support now? Or is it kind of what you know, what you can research and find on your own that you rely on? Yeah, it's really that. I mean, it's you know eating clean, as clean as possible, um, lower Lower to no, you know, sugar and processed foods, um, which are delicious, but, you know, (laughs) definitely not good for you. Um, And, you know, the whole inflammation paradox of, you know, so much of what we eat, particularly if it's processed, causing inflammation in our bodies, which leads to other health issues, um, can be a challenge. So it's, for me, it's eating as cleanly as possible, as little alcohol, as much as I love, you know, a good beer or a good glass of wine every once in a while. I think we all do. Um, is, you know, and so I, you know, I study from other people, um, who I'm aware of who've had success and really just sort of follow in their footsteps. And do you feel like, I'm going to assume we've never really talked about how you grew up and your education growing up, but you're college educated. So do you feel like you had, you already had a basis of understanding about nutrition that helped you do your own research as you grew and knew you needed to do something? Yeah. I mean, as, like I said, I'm a, I've struggled with my weight my whole life. I, I was a big kid, the high school coaches, you know, <laughs> would have died for me to play football. I was one of, you know, one of those big bruiser kind of kids in high school. Um, So I know how to lose weight. I know what it takes to do it healthfully. I mean, I also know what it takes to do it unhealthfully because I've, you know, as someone who struggled, I've done all the unhealthy diets as well, but I know that short-term, short-term fast weight loss means (laughs) once you go back, you know, the weight and 
and friends comes back. So, yeah, I've learned really through my own experience, but again, you know, experience from others and doing my own study, thankfully, because of my education, um, you know, understanding how to do research and do research properly um, to be helpful. And and so. the reason for listeners that I'm kind of going down this rabbit trail of the nutrition is I think this is an area of disparities that doesn't get, we talk about the food deserts, we talk about people who don't have access, but we don't talk a lot about the lack of knowledge. And we don't talk a lot about how to help people adjust their diets. If you've grown up eating a certain way, and then the doctor says, you need more fresh fruits and vegetables. Well, you don't know what to do with them. You don't know how to incorporate them. So to me, part of health literacy is even foundational in what does it mean to eat healthy? And what does it mean to, if you do have access, what does it mean to shop in the outer rim of the the grocery store instead of the inside? And we don't spend enough time educating. We kind of take it for granted, I think. And that leads to more disparities. We know that diet impacts health. We know that diet impacts health outcomes. But we don't really address those disparities of not just the food deserts, but knowledge, being able to change habits. And that takes consistency. It takes some coaching. It's not just a you get told and you're done. Right. right. And I know this is a, a passion for you as well, you know, nutrition literacy and, and nutrition in general. How did that come to you? I mean, was that, again, you know, your educational background? Was it something you've learned, trained to understand? So, And I um, know you're a nurse, so yes. that, I'm certain that plays into it, it as well. It right? does, although I will tell you, mine really stemmed from my own health challenges and some autoimmune issues. And the more I would just read about things – And I watched other women that had similar conditions. And I thought to myself, I don't want to be a victim to this. So I wanted to, and I had one of the nation's top doctors in the area. And she very much, it was prescriptions. And oh, if you're having pain, here's this prescription. And let's do this and let's do that. Well, I also know I'm very sensitive to medications. Mm -hmm. So I started doing my own research. And things like yoga and Tai Chi came up to help with pain, but I also started, it started really with artificial sweeteners. I was a huge diet soda drinker. I used artificial sweeteners in my coffee because they were better than sugar, right? Like that's what we hear. But then you learn that they impact inflammation and they can cause issues. So it started, I really was trying to wean myself off of artificial sweeteners. And then as you grow and evolve in that and you just learn and pick up other things, I started learning more about processed foods and the chemicals that are in processed foods. And even if there's not additional chemicals, just the processing Mm -hmm. we do to food itself changes the integrity of the food. So I started trying to wean off of processed foods. And then I learned about things like farm fresh eggs are so much more nutritional than store-bought eggs and how the chickens are raised. And then you start going down all these rabbit trails about where does our food come from and the differences between grass-fed beef and conventional farming in the United States and the differences in the quality of the nutrition that's within that. So 
really starting to change my own diet. And it's a journey. It is a process because I didn't grow up eating like this. So sure. it's unlearning years of habits. It's unlearning the quick fixes of going to the convenience. I'm hungry. I need a snack. I'm out running errands. So you run in the convenience store and grab a tasty cake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's unlearning all of those things. And then dragging your family along with you, right? Because it's harder to do when you're by yourself. But I'm also very cognizant. I am blessed enough to have the resources to do that. So part of my passion also is you don't have to be in a higher socioeconomic class to make some of these changes. It's about trying to find what is the best that you can afford and how do you work with what's accessible to you to make some of these changes because even little changes make a big impact. But what I found through it is the more changes I make and especially the artificial sweeteners changed how I felt. Mm -hmm. It was such a dramatic change for me in how I felt and inflammation was lower. Really understanding how our body processes some of these chemicals, things like high fructose corn syrup All that gets processed in the liver. So when we question now our health outcomes, why do we have so much fatty liver disease? Why are we getting cirrhosis in people that don't really drink? And it's because it goes back to decades of our diets. Um, But really starting to understand that and I think making impacts for people before they're really sick or before they need expensive medications that they can't afford or they're having to make choices. Can I eat or can I take medication? Um, because they can't afford to do both. Mm-hmm. So to me, that has really developed this passion is that 80% of our chronic medical issues in the United States can be dealt with in the kitchen. And we don't spend enough time with that. And that's where that literacy really comes into play for me. And I think about the people who just don't know. Right. But we don't address it in healthcare either. You said something that triggered a a thought in my head. So I have a friend who just came back from a European tour and she, in Amsterdam, wasn't feeling well and went to the doctor. And, you know, as an American, you expect, I'm going to get a shot. They're going to send me on my way. And she asked questions about her vitamin intake and her, you know, um, what kinds of um, foods was she eating? And supplements and the focus was more on maybe you should take some zinc or you should take some you know vitamin c or vitamin d because you're having an inflammation response to something and that's their focus as opposed to and she she was amazed i mean she you know she came back and she was like went to my doctor for the same thing here and it was here's your shot you know go on your way and it was more conversational in in the clinic in Amsterdam, trying to get to the root of, you know, this is a symptom of something mm-hmm. that isn't just the illness you're facing necessarily, but it's a bigger issue. Right. And we, so we have a colleague that just came back from Italy and she said how great she felt while she was there because the food is different. Right. It's whole food. It's nutritional and it's not laden with chemicals and over being overly processed. And, you know, she noticed that she felt the difference. And, and that it's more satisfying. Yes, because, it is. A smaller you amount. To, you don't have to eat so much. Right. A smaller amount be, of food yeah. is more satisfying. And I see an integrative or functional medicine doctor, and it's the same thing. It's really focused on what is the root cause 
of it? And how do you get to health? And sometimes it is increasing the supplements. And it's not just about the lab test. Oh, you're in the middle of the road of the lab test. Well, each of us is unique. So what's normal for you may not be normal for me, even though the lab test says it's normal for both. So that's really important. Um, And I could go on and on about that topic. (laughs) But one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about, because I think this is also important in disparities and equity, is support. Mm -hmm. So you had your wife and you had a network that understood cancer and you have social networks available to you now. How do you think your journey or experiences would have been different if you did not have that support? It would have been vastly different. I mean, I can see, I can see the difference in even when, when I was in the chemo chair, you know, I would get chemo every other Wednesday for six months and there were, there were the people like me who had, you know, Sarah was with me every session and we, she worked, you know, but she was next to me the whole time while I'm, you know, reading a book or watching TV or, you know, she's got her laptop out, but we were together and we would joke with the nurses and, but there were too many people in my opinion who were there by themselves, whether that's by choice or because they didn't have anyone to be with them. Um, I don't know. It broke my heart because I think, how are they getting through this without the support of someone else with them? without not that you can make light of cancer, although (laughs) I'm in a group of guys and that's all we do is make light of cancer. Um, but to, you know, joke around with the nurses and make people laugh and, um, just be there to support each other, be able to talk about what you're going through with somebody who's there um, who's been there and understands what's happening. I don't think I could have done it to be honest without certainly not to the, to the success that I had without that added benefit of support. And again, I don't know. So many people don't want to talk about the fact that they're, they've been diagnosed or, the part that saddens me the most is people know deep down. They know I have cancer. I know it's cancer. I don't want to hear those words because I don't want to tell my family and I don't know who's going to be there to support me on this journey. Um, and you know, as much support as I had, there were people who halfway through, didn't want to deal with it anymore. Didn't want to deal with the fact that I was in treatment anymore. Um, and disappeared from the scene. And while that certainly grieves my soul on a very base level, um, and I want them to know they're always welcome to come back, uh, because, Hey, that part, the bad part's over, you know, and it's been over for 10 years. Um, they're always welcome back. Um, but I don't, yeah, to, I don't know how people without the resources for that support do it. And, 
you know, I'm also aware there are programs available. You know, there are organizations that provide rides to treatment, and that's certainly provides some level of support. But the emotional support of family and friends and coworkers to really quality of life during treatment and survivorship in the end is so important. Um, and I just, I hope everyone who's listening, who is facing cancer right now has at least one person in their life, um, who is supporting them on their journey. And if they don't, maybe they can find me and I'll be happy to support them. (laughs) So, um, I know we're almost out of time, but I know you're still, you are a great advocate for cancer, colorectal cancer and being checked and really trying to get the word out. How do you see your role within Oak Ridge Associated Universities or company, ORAU, as helping to support health equity and and maybe in particular around cancer? And then how do you, what do you do in your personal life for that too? <laughs> so um, I'll start with the, the organizational role. Um, I feel like I can be an advocate internally to Oak Ridge Associated Universities um, because I feel like I can put my personal imprint on maybe some of the, the work that we are looking to do um, with – other partners with some of our partner universities with some of our federal agency partners um, to be able to say, Hey, I think this is an important issue. Maybe there's something we can do, whether it's um, using artificial intelligence to mine data in electronic health records to get to some of those disparities and social needs um, issues that we've been talking about Um, or helping launch, you know, education programs that really get to the heart of the importance of screening for colorectal cancer. In my personal life, I mean, that's the kind of stuff I do a lot, um, particularly at the federal policy level. I'm a volunteer for um, a couple of different organizations and my advocacy work has been primarily in the policy space, but passing, getting legislation like the Affordable Care Act passed, um, like there, a bill that it took 10 years to pass called the um, Removing Barriers to Colorectal Cancer Screening Act that closed a loophole in Medicare where if you got a, colon, if you got a colonoscopy, if it was clear, everything was fine. If they found a polyp, suddenly you've had a procedure and you might get a surprise bill as a Medicare recipient. So um, there are just, there are a number of those sorts of things. There's a patient quality of life legislation around palliative care and hospice. That is really important to me um, getting passed to help people get the team approach to care that I didn't get. Um, And, you know, is there a role for our organization in, helping the world understand what the difference is between hospice care and what true palliative care looks like. Um, and it's some of what, what we've talked about in terms of that holistic approach mm-hmm. to health, that it's not just, you know, a shot in the drugs. It's, it's everything that we do plays a part in it. So, um, 
I guess, same question for you. Where do you see your role in helping ORAU advance health equity moving forward? So I think we have a great role. I love that we work with so many universities who are on the cutting edge, and we work with HBCUs and HSIs and tribal organizations to help reach their communities because that stakeholder engagement and that peer-to-peer is so much more effective. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's part of it. We do a lot of health communications. So that health literacy, that getting the knowledge out and the education out is so critical in a lot of the work that we do. Um, So there's a lot that comes into play with that. And personally, I'm working towards a health coach certification, which some people say, you're already a nurse. Well, that's true. But health coaching is at a different level and really being able to integrate that to help people more one-on-one make their changes and and empower them to make their own changes. Um, So there's a lot of work to be done, but I... We could go do a whole other session just about <laughs> hospice and palliative care Absolutely. and the importance of that holistic approach and looking at the whole person. And that's all parts. That's the spiritual, emotional, mental, physical. It's not just the physical symptoms. So, Michael, this has been great. I always enjoy our conversations, <laughs> although usually you're interviewing me. Right. Um, so thank you so much for taking this time and sharing your story with us. Thank you, Brenda. I appreciate it. And I love what you said about um, kind of in the context of palliative care and, and hospice. But if we could look at the whole person in all of healthcare, I think we could do a lot to reduce health disparities and health, get to health equity if we saw each other as, as individuals and as people, as the whole person. Um, so again, I appreciate the time that we've had together and I love working with you and I'm glad we got to do this. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU and on Instagram at ORAU Together. If you like Further Together, the ORAU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.